Uh, for, for, uh, for the folks that remain in the room, how's everybody doing? Amen. 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 Praise God. Um, anybody ever heard, heard of New Coke? Is, am I going too far back? Am I dating some people? New Coke, 1985. It was, a, it was an idea to... To actually come up, somebody, somebody over at Coca-Cola decided, you know what, I got a great idea. Let's change the Coca-Cola formula. Just change it a little bit, sweeten it a little bit, and, and let's call it New Coke. It's going, it's going, it's going, it's going to launch, man. It's going, it's going to set the world on fire. People are going to be buying New Coke. Right? And, and people are going to be throwing their, throwing their old Coca-Cola cans over the bridge and, and, and holding their new Coke cans in triumph, right? It's the new, bre- new beverage of a generation. Didn't quite work out that way. It was met with utter disdain. People despised it. Revolts ensued. And people just, it was very simple. Not necessarily anything wrong with introducing a new flavor. People just like their old Coke better. Said, we don't need an imitation of Coke. We just, we just need Coke, right? And some of y'all are like that right now, right? Coke, Coke will try to come up with something like Coke Zero. I'm like, I ain't drinking Coke Zero. I'm drinking regular Coca-Cola. That's what I want, Coke, Right? And so, and, so, and, so, and so Coke thought they were doing something good by coming up with an invitation. And, and they ended up finding out that the invitation was not welcome. There are some invitations that are welcome. There are some invitations that are good. People enjoy people imitating celebrities, right? It's like, oh, man, he sounds and talks and looks just like Stevie Wonder, right? People enjoy that. Or, oh, man, he looks just like, he sounds and talks and looks just like, Chris Rock or Eddie Murphy or whomever or Brad Pitt. I mean, people love that kind of stuff. People did not love New Coke. But there's also other imitations that aren't a good thing. And one imitation that's not a good thing is the gospel. The gospel isn't meant to be imitated. The gospel isn't meant to be mimicked. The gospel is meant to be embraced. As is. Old Coke. Open your mouth and drink it. So I'm going to talk a little bit about the gospel as as it relates to Paul being in Ephesus because we see a couple of things happening in Ephesus. One, we see the gospel being embraced completely. And then two, we see the gospel being imitated foolishly. So I want to talk about the gospel being embraced versus the gospel being imitated. Now, a little, a little, a little history about Ephesus for us. There's about 250,000 people that live in Ephesus at the time. It's, uh, it's a city that, that is home to many idols, many gods or lowercase gods and goddesses. And many people worship um, their gods and goddesses in this city. It is a port city. In other words, like, like Vicksburg in some ways, but, but more so like New Orleans. A large port city that brings a lot of commerce and a lot of revenue 
because people are bringing all of their materials and goods on ships. And of course, they're even more dependent on ports in this time than they, than they are now with trucks and planes and things of that nature. It's also one of the, or the capital for the Roman government in Asia, right? So this city is, is one of the larger cities in Asia. It's considered the hub of, of governance and it's considered the hub of the economy and commerce. It's where all the big things are happening, right? It's also one of the it's a location of one of the seven, the great seven wonders of the ancient world. The, the, the temple of Artemis is, is located right here in Corinth. And so, you know, it's a strategic spot. And so Paul considers it strategic enough that he begin that he takes his, his gospel and, and, and he begins his third missionary journey in Ephesus. Now, Ephesus is a, is a place that Paul actually stopped in his second journey or his second missionary journey, as he's returning back home, he stops in Ephesus, and, 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 and there's a brief stay, just long enough in chapter 18, where we see Priscilla and Aquila being dropped off in Ephesus, Paul leaving them there, and then, he and then he begins to share the gospel a little bit. People urge him to stay, and Paul says, no, 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 I got to go home. But if the Lord wills, I'll be back. And so guess what? The Lord wills, and so he is, he's back. And so Paul is in Ephesus in chapter 19, and we see immediately that he begins to share the gospel, and the gospel is embraced. His first encounter upon his return to this booming city is with a group of disciples in the streets of the city who aren't quite disciples of Christ yet. Look at verse 1. It says, and it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus, and there he found some disciples, and he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believe? And they said, Nor, No, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, Into then, into what then were you baptized? And they said, Into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him. That is Jesus. And on hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying, and there were about 12 men in all. These disciples that Paul encounters are different from the uh, disciples that Paul is making. They have yet to truly come into a, a knowledge of Jesus Christ. They were disciples, but not yet fully converted through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And in this encounter, we see two ways in, in which these Ephesian disciples are not experiencing the fullness of the transformation that the gospel brings. The first way is that a gospel without the spirit is no gospel. They had yet to receive the fullness of the gospel because a gospel without the spirit is no gospel. Paul begins his discussion by asking a very important question. Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believe? The Spirit is a third person of the Trinity, the triune God. He was present throughout eternity past and was present in the creation of heavens and earth or the heavens and the earth. He indwelled Old Testament believers at certain strategic moments and times in Old Testament history. We see Samson, for example, empowered by the Spirit with great strength 
to defeat the Philistines. We see the prophets empowered by the Spirit to speak on behalf of God. We see uh, Bazalel uh, uh, empowered by the Spirit with artistic creativity for the purposes of designing the tabernacle. So we see different people in different moments empowered by the Spirit in the Old Testament. When we get to the New Testament, we see the Spirit of God coming down and resting upon Christ. And then we hear Christ make certain promises about the Spirit that relate back to us. For example, he says, without the Spirit, salvation is not possible. John chapter 3, verse 5, it says, Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. We also see that with the Spirit, we will be guided into the truth of the gospel. John 16 and 13 says, when the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak and he will declare to you the things that are to come. With the Spirit, we will be empowered to be gospel witnesses, Acts chapter 1, verse 8, which we read every Sunday at the conclusion of service. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in, Ju- in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and to the end of the earth, Samaria and to the end of the earth. In addition to Jesus, we hear the apostles refer to the many ways that the Spirit is at work in us individually and in, at work in us as a church as a whole. With the Spirit, we will be given understanding concerning the things of God, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 12. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. With the Spirit, we see that we are given gifts. With the Spirit, we are given gifts. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 7, it says, To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. We are given gifts to serve the common good. With the Spirit, our salvation is sealed until the day of redemption. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 5. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. See, a gospel without the Spirit is no gospel at all. You see, the Spirit is so intricately woven into Christian experience and and gospel proclamation that if you take him out, you have no gospel. A.W. Pink, an old theologian and preacher in his book called The Holy Spirit, puts the importance of the Spirit to the Christian life on full display in these words. Listen. Until the Holy Spirit is again given his rightful place in our hearts, thoughts, and activities, there can be no improvement. Until it be recognized that we are entirely dependent upon his operations for all spiritual blessing, the root of the trouble cannot be reached. Until it be recognized that it is not by might of trained workers, nor by power of intellectual argument or persuasive appeal, but by my spirit, say of the Lord, there will be no deliverance from that fleshly zeal which is not according to knowledge and which is now paralyzing Christendom. Until the Holy Spirit is honored and sought and counted upon, the present spiritual drought must continue. Pink in the same book also quotes another 
theologian, Pastor Arthur, by the name of Samuel Chadwick. And, and Samuel Chadwick says this. He says, the gift of the Spirit is the crowning mercy of God in Christ Jesus. It was for this all the rest was. The incarnation, the crucifixion, the resurrection, and ascension were all preparatory to Pentecost. In other words, preparatory to the arrival of the Spirit. Without the gift of the Holy Spirit, all the rest would be useless. The essential, vital, central element in the life of the soul and the work of the church is the person of the Spirit. See, a life professing Jesus without the indwelling Spirit is a car without fuel. Empty, without purpose, and without function. The Spirit is the crowning gift and sustaining aid of the one who professes Christ Jesus as Lord. It's for that reason we must ask ourselves frequently a few questions, starting with this one primarily. Are we leaning on the Spirit? Am I leaning on the Spirit for my daily walk as a Christian? Am I leaning on the Spirit to ignite my thirst and my hunger for God in times of dryness? Am I leaning on the Spirit to guard my heart from temptation and from dullness? This understanding of the Spirit should also direct how we, or, or direct the type of questions that we ask as it relates to our relationships with one another. In other words, are we praying for the Spirit's work in the life of our Christian family? Am I praying that the Lord will stir his people by his Spirit to boldly bear witness that Christ is Lord of all? Am I praying to the Lord, that the Lord would wake us from any slumber and spiritual sluggishness that would cause us to grow cold to the beauty of Christ. Am I praying that he would do that by the Spirit? See, some of, you, some of you find yourself in the midst of a period of profound spiritual dryness. But could it be that the spiritual dryness is because you have ignored the most important ingredient in your spiritual life, the spirit of the living God. Some of you have knowledge of the spirit, but you live like these disciples in Acts chapter 19. What spirit? We've never heard of the spirit. Paul wrote a letter to the same church long after he was, long after he had left the church and moved on to his other missionary efforts. And in it, he calls the church to be filled not with wine, but to be filled with the Spirit. It is a call to move from finding joy and finding peace and finding hope and finding purpose and finding meaning in self-medication. To not be filled up with other fleeting things. To not be filled up with alcohol, to not be filled up with drugs, to not be filled up with TV, to not be filled up with social media, to not be filled up with thirst for success, to not be filled up with craving for ambition or ambitious cravings, to not be filled up with all these things as a way to find joy and find peace and find meaning and find hope and find enhancement in one's life, but rather to be filled with the Spirit. John Piper describes what it means to be filled by the Spirit in his article, How to Be Filled with the Spirit. He says this, So how then shall we get drunk? Fill with the Spirit. Drink it. Lots of it. 
Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13, we are all made to drink of one spirit. So how can you drink the spirit? Paul said those who live according to the spirit set their minds on the things of the spirit. We drink the spirit by setting our minds on the things of the spirit. What does setting the mind on the spirit mean? Colossians chapter 3, verse 1 through 2 says, seek the things that are above. Set your mind on the things that are above. Setting the mind on means seeking, directing your attention toward, being very concerned about. What are the things of the spirit? When Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14, the natural person does not accept the things of the spirit, he was referring to his own spirit-inspired teachings about the thoughts and the ways and the plans of God. Therefore, the things of the spirit are the teachings of the apostles about God. Jesus also said, the words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. Therefore, the teachings of Jesus are also the things of the spirit. What is Piper saying? He's saying this. Be filled with the spirit by keeping your mind stayed on Jesus. And keep your mind stayed on Jesus by keeping your mind on his word and keeping his word in you. And often offering prayers from you. That's what it means to live in the Spirit, to be filled with the Spirit. Can I just be honest real quick? Some of us like to blame the outside factors for our spiritual dryness rather than the inside factors. Are you tracking with me? Some of us, some of us look to the outside factors. We look to our social circle. We look to our family situation. We look to our financial situation. We look to our church situation. All of those elements we look to and they all do, can, do and can have a role in your spiritual dryness. But oftentimes, the biggest factor is the most ignored one. We simply aren't seeking to be filled with the Spirit. Consider Paul's situation in Philippians. He's worn, suffering in his body, writing from a prison cell. And I'm talking about the book of Philippians, the letter in Philippians, the letter of Philippians. He writes from a prison cell. He writes suffering in his body. He writes worn and battered. And yet in that same letter, in the prison, worn and battered, he says to live as Christ and to die as gain. In that same letter, warm, battered from a prison cell, he writes, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. In that same prison, worn and battered, he writes, my God shall supply all my needs according to his riches and his glory through Christ Jesus. In a prison, worn and battered, he's still able to say, and the peace of God which passes all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. How can Paul say all of that given his external conditions? I believe it was because Paul was filled with the Spirit. Not self-medication. Not games. Not social media, not endless hours of entertainment, not endless pursuits of lust, greed, selfish ambition, but he was filled with the Spirit. See, to walk fully in the gospel, we must walk in the Spirit.
But Paul makes another important point here that would be worthy of our worthy of our pause and worthy of our meditation, and that is this a gospel without the call to repentance and trust in Jesus is no gospel at all. Paul digs deeper into the insufficiency of these disciples' walk in verse 4. He says in verse 4, And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him. That is Jesus. Paul's point is simple. You guys were baptized for preparation, not for salvation. There is no salvation in John. There is only salvation in Jesus. Now, don't ignore the part about repentance. The part about repentance is extremely important. Repentance is an essential ingredient in the recipe of salvation. Repentance is best defined in two continuous actions. Turning away and turning to. That's what what repentance is. Turning away and turning to. Turning away from evil continually and continually turning to Christ. John's call was to turn from evil in order that the hearts would be ready to turn to Christ in trust and faith at his coming. So to live a life of repentance is to live a life turning away from evil and to live a life turning to Jesus. We hear from the very beginning of Jesus' earthly ministry these words of repentance. Verse verse. 15 of chapter 1 of Mark, and saying, the time is fulfilled. This is Jesus, immediately out of the gate. The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent. Repentance, repentance is important. Amen? The first words being uttered out of Jesus' mouth in his earthly ministry. And, of course, when Jesus gave the disciples their ministry, they continued to call people to repentance. Mark chapter 6, verse 7, what happens? And he called the 12 and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. And then verse 12, it says what? So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. Repentance is important. Even after Christ departs from this earth, the apostles are calling men and women to do what? Repent. Acts chapter 2, verse 3. I'm sorry, verse 38. And Peter said to them, repent. And be baptized. Every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ. Turn from evil and turn to Christ. Repentance is a necessary action in the life of the Christian. But repentance alone does not make the gospel. See if you just turn from evil. But you don't turn to the right source. Then it becomes moralism. If you just turn from evil but you don't turn to the right source. Then it just becomes doing good things. Turning over a new leaf. Repentance is not alone. Remember, bona fide repentance is not just what we turn from, but what we turn to. And this is where Paul's point becomes more clear. John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to do what? To believe in the one who was to come after him. That is Jesus. Salvation is found in Jesus, in Jesus alone. So in order to truly find salvation, we must turn to faith in Christ. We can live lives in which we resolve to be better and we can live lives in which we turn to other gods and hold to some sort of moral standard, do better, work harder, sin less. But salvation only comes to us through trusting 
in Jesus Christ for salvation. Amen. I think we got him. There was a wasp flying through here. Some of you guys were locked in. I appreciate that. But I think we got him. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. Salvation is found in Christ alone. The question is why? Why is salvation found in Christ alone? Well, it's easy because your sin costs something. Somebody had to pay for it. And there was only one who was sufficient to pay for it. There was only one who was holy enough to pay for it. There was only one who was spotless enough to pay for it. And that was Jesus Christ. The reason why salvation is found in Jesus Christ, because Jesus Christ was the only one able to pay for the sin debt that you owe. So the proper response to the gospel is not only a turn from sin, but also a turn to Jesus. This is the gospel response. And let me just say a few things about how they respond. So they speak in tongues. And most of us hear the word tongues, and then we say, okay, I understand what's going on now. So, so God is, whenever the Holy Spirit moves, God gives tongues. But I want you to pay attention to something really, really quickly. There's a chart that we're going to throw up on the screen real quick, and that chart kind of highlights that there are three moments in which tongues shows up in the book of Acts. Acts chapter 2, Acts chapter 10, and Acts chapter 19. And each one of those moments was for a specific purpose and related to the salvation. And so in other words, the moment they were saved, tongues came into the picture. And the reason that tongues came into the picture was to validate something in each moment. The first moment was to validate the arrival of the Spirit, as it was prophesied in Joel, Joel chapter 2. The second moment was to validate God's acceptance of the Gentiles. The Jews were watching. God was demonstrating that he was embracing the Gentile people who they thought God didn't want a relationship with. And so he validated it with tongues. And then here, the last time, in Acts chapter 19, is to validate Paul's message for the Jews. The ones who said, well, the only thing we know is John's baptism. And Paul comes along and says, you're missing something. And then he preaches the gospel to them. And then what happens? Tongues falls. So the purpose of tongues was to validate the message. I say that to say that every single experience now in salvation will not come with tongues. It does not mean that you don't have the spirit, though. The Bible says that we are all now baptized into one spirit, even though the same, the same book of the Bible says that some will speak in tongues, some will prophesy, some will exercise this gift, some will exercise that gift. In other words, all of us won't have the same gifts, but we are all baptized in the same spirit. Does that make sense? Nevertheless, we skip down and we get to Acts chapter 19, uh, Acts chapter 19 verse 11, and we move from the gospel being embraced to the gospel being imitated. We move from the gospel being embraced to the gospel being imitated. Verse 11, it says, And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hand of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and the, and the evil spirits came out of them. See, even in the midst of opposition, the Lord is blessing Paul's preaching. Paul in, 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 in verses 8 through 10 is receiving opposition, and yet we see Paul is still being blessed tremendously to carry, forth, carry on the gospel work that he began. He's proclaiming Jesus. He's teaching the truth of God's word, and then God is affirming that truth and validating that truth with what? Signs and wonders. 
Pay attention to the power of God on display in these moments. Handkerchiefs and aprons are just touching the man. And then they're taking those handkerchiefs and those aprons and then they're laying them on their sick. And seeing them recover and may well. Over and over, we see that when God's people go out boldly with the gospel on our lips and the spirit of God on the inside of us and the confidence of God in our hearts or the confidence in God in our hearts, the Lord makes himself known in power. Now, your shadow may not heal anybody and your handkerchief might not heal anybody, but our God is no less present in you and with you when you move in power and when you go boldly forth in his name. See, fully embracing his gospel through opposition and through resistance leads to operating in his power. However, a very interesting shift and twist takes place in this chapter in verse 13. And from that twist, we see two particular points bubbling to the surface that is worth our time to ponder as we turn towards the back end of our sermon. And that's this, a gospel response without authenticity is no gospel at all. Second point is a gospel response without reverence is no gospel response at all. Verse 13, it says, then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of Jewish high priests named Sceva were doing this. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know. Paul I recognize. But who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them. We call it beat down. And overpowered them so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. They got the clothes beat off of them, folks. By one man. These sons appear to have been in the business of exorcisms. And they appear to be willing to use whatever name that seemed to be laced with power. In this case, they felt it appropriate to use the name of Jesus. But we see that this decision ends horribly wrong. They are beaten out of their clothes and out of their house. I can yell stop in the name of the law. I want to. I can run down the street on the way out, on the way out of service today, see somebody I don't like. They drive by speeding a little bit. I jump out of my car and I run. Stop! Halt! In the name of the law. Tell me the guy's gonna stop. I have no authority. I don't represent the police. I don't represent the law. I don't represent, I don't represent anything related to the law. So I can use the law's name, but if I don't actually represent the law, what's the, what, what, what substance do I carry? 
I carry no power to actually impact anything. I carry no power to influence anything. Derek's back there like, yep, amen, right? You shout stop in the name of the law if you want to, to try to stop a fight. You get beat up like the sons of Sceva. Why is that? Because the name has to be connected to substance. Those who are representatives of Jesus Christ are the only ones who are given the authority to speak with power on his behalf. Watch those who who co-op the brand of Jesus without authentically submitting to the lordship of Jesus. Watch those who see the brand of Jesus as a ticket to prominence or a ticket to popularity or a ticket to power. Watch those who speak his name but won't bow their knees. A gospel response is not a matter of just calling on the name of the Lord. It requires a sincerity of call. The mouth must declare, but the heart must as well. The mouth must declare that Jesus Christ is Lord. As the sons of Sceva declare, come out in the name of Jesus whom Paul proclaims. But the difference here between Paul and the sons of Sceva was that Christ was proclaimed not just from the mouth, but Christ was proclaimed from the heart of Paul. The sons of Sceva proclaimed Jesus as a brand. The gospel response is not a matter of just calling on the name. A gospel response requires sincerity in the call. But not only must a gospel response be authentic, but a gospel response is only a response, a gospel, true gospel response, if it is reverent. A gospel response without reverence is no gospel at all. In verse 17 through 20, we see this. It says, beginning at verse 17, and this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. And also many of those who were now believers came confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all, and they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. Notice that Christ can get his glory even even when cheap imitations are being used. That people end up embracing the gospel as a result of the cheap imitations that we find in the sons of Sceva, right? Because see, the sons of Sceva's cheap imitation or because of, through rather their cheap imitation, people recognize the real one when they see it. Does that make sense? People recognize how much they love Coke when new Coke came out. Once new Coke came out, Coke was like, original Coke went up. 
stock went up. You know, the value of original Coke went up. Because people was like, I don't want that cheap imitation. I want the real stuff. Now I got a taste for Coke. Does that make sense? When the Im- Sometimes when imitations are brought forward, it brings exposure to the real thing. So here is the sons of Sceva calling on the name of Jesus and the demon saying, I don't know you. And so the people begin to say, well, wait a second. What kind of power is at work in, in the proclamation of Jesus where the demon would be scared of those who authentically proclaim him. And so they begin to bring all of their books of sorcery, as you can see, gods and goddesses. Remember, we talked about that earlier. There's all sorts of gods and goddesses that are, that are, that are being worshipped in this city, so all sorts of magical practices are, are, are taking place in this city. And these people lay down their idols. They bring all of their idols. And they bring those books in the light of day, in the sight of all, and they burn them. The Bible says they counted their value to be 50,000 pieces of silver. Now, if you're talking about uh, 50,000 denarii of silver, then it could be 5.5 million, somewhere in that neighborhood in our day and age. But if you're, if you're talking about 50,000 talents of silver it could be up to a billion we don't know we don't know what kind of economic shift we see in this moment but we see literally that the gospel being proclaimed in this moment creates economic turmoil almost people are throwing their all of the all of these books away and saying hey this is the true god this is who we need to worship out of all these gods in this city this is the god that we need to worship and lay claim to. There was holy reverence. Did you hear hear the words? It says fear fell upon them in verse 17. It was holy reverence that led to gospel embrace. See, sometimes I believe our lackadaisical response to the gospel is a result of simply us forgetting the God of the gospel, forgetting who he is. Forgetting who he is, treating him and taking him too lightly, forgetting that he is God of the universe, forgetting that through all things, or rather, he has created all things, and through all things, or rather, through him, all things exist, forgetting that he is sustaining and keeping all things, forgetting that he is holy. Forgetting that the angels declare that he is holy, that he is holy, 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 the holiest of them all. And that there is no spot or wrinkle or blemish in him. And forgetting that even though he is holy, even though he is perfectly within his right to judge sin out of his holiness, that he's merciful, endlessly merciful, so merciful that he sent his own son to a world of sin. To live amongst sinners. To eat and to fellowship and to dine with sinners. And to go to the cross bearing the weight of 
sinners and to take the wrath of his own father upon his own back for sinners. Sometimes our lackadaisical living is a result of us forgetting the perfection and the holiness and the goodness and the mercy and the love of God. And so sometimes we need to be reminded of this. In light of all the things drawing our attention away, sometimes we just need to be reminded of the majesty of God so that we might be reminded of his call to us and so that we might be energized and stirred to live out that call. When these people saw God on display, they turned from their idols in order that they might worship the one true living God. The Bible says when these people saw these idols on display, verse 30, or verse 20, it says the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. When these people saw idols on display, they said enough with this. Let's follow Jesus. So that's my prayer, right? That's my prayer for us. That's my prayer for each and every single one of us in this room is that we would see God for who he is. We would, that we would see, behold his majesty. And that as we behold his majesty, our reverence would increase. And our embrace would increase with our reverence. The gospel is not to be imitated. We serve a God who is, who is, who cannot be duplicated. We serve a God who cannot be imitated. And so we don't need another version of him. We don't need to brand him. We don't need to make him more, more tolerable or more acceptable. We just need to embrace him where he is. Embrace him for who he is. May this be our call, may this be our prayer, amen.